Let's bow our heads in prayer. We praise you this day, Father, for the, the gift, the sending, for the incarnation, for a light to revelation, and all blessing and honor and praise is yours, Father. We've gathered throughout this Advent season to recognize your coming, Emmanuel, God with us. We've also gathered here today, Father, as people, sinful and perfect people, with minds and hearts full of distractions. Lord, we've gathered here today with family challenges on our heavy on our hearts and work-related challenges, sickness in our family, maybe even our own lives. Father, we've gathered, some of us have come today with sadness that goes along with the holidays and simply the distractions of the world particularly the world's take on this celebration. Deliver us. Focus our heart's attention on you, you alone. Focus our minds on you and you alone. Lord, may we see only you as we walk through these next few days particularly. We pray for those that are not here today, homesick or homebound, and ask your Father just to comfort them, take care of them, use us as a church to minister to them and bring blessing to their lives. Pray for those that are traveling, give them safety. And in a world full of war and strife and sin, We pray, O Lord, that the Prince of Peace will bring peace to our lives. The Prince of Peace will use his church to bring peace to our community, our world. We pray that we might proclaim with boldness the Prince of Peace. We have more and more opportunities, particularly these next couple of days. And we pause now, Father, to thank you for your word. Your word that teaches us what true giving really is. For greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Teach us to give in such a way. We thank you for the word proclaimed today. You might speak through our pastor. You might give him boldness, clarity of thought. Bless his preparation. As he delivers your message to your people this day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. This morning, we break away just uh, for a week here from our study of John's Gospel. We uh, plan to pick back up with that, uh, chapter 11 of John, next Sunday morning. Uh, But for today, we will go back and look into the Christmas story. It's that time of year. We celebrate the birth of Christ, and it's fitting that we... Give some attention to to that marvelous event, the incarnation of Christ this morning. So let's look at uh, Luke chapter 2, um, verses 8 through 18. We won't cover all that this morning, but we'll read it all together. 
Luke records for us this. He says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. In the beginning of our study of the Gospel of John, just a few pages over in your Bible, John introduced us to really the incredible, significant, substantial miracle of Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, right? The, the remarkable fact that God became flesh and dwelt among men. If you flip over to John, just remember how he introduced us to this. He, he said in the very beginning of his gospel, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, w- he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's introducing us to the person of Christ, and we know because we've tracked through ten chapters of the Gospel of John that John has been progressively revealing to us the identity of who is this Word who became flesh. He's going to tell us in a moment. This Word who was in the beginning. This Word who was with God and who was God, who through whom all things were created and without whom nothing that was made was made. The one who created all things, the one who sustained all things, the one who was before all things. This Word, this Word... Who was God? He tells us a few verses later in verse 14, this word, who was all those things, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in such a short section of text, John introduced us to what is the most remarkable, unbelievable miracle that has ever faced humanity. The miracle of God becoming flesh. The incarnation of Jesus. And there are a lot of miracles in the Bible. Now, we've tracked through a few of them as we've worked our way through John. But there's no miracle that tops this miracle. The miracle of God himself. Stepping out of heaven and becoming flesh. One could argue that it's the most significant truth in Christianity, right? I mean, everything kind of hinges on the incarnation of Christ. It, it really kind of kicks off the New Testament. It's the fact, the truth, the miracle um, that really sets Christianity apart from any other religion. I don't know of any other faith, at least to my knowledge, that purports anything like this, that purports anything like the idea that the God who created and sustains all all things, the God who has existed from all eternity, has come into humanity and wrapped himself in flesh and incarnated himself. It's unique to Christianity. I don't know of any other religion that reports anything like that. It's a truth that must be believed because to reject it is to reject really Christianity. Our faith rises and falls on this idea of the incarnation, this thing that we celebrate at Christmas. The whole of the Bible really hinges on it. It is, in in fact, the central fact of the Bible. To rightly understand the Old Testament and everything it points to, we need to understand the incarnation. And to rightly understand the New Testament, we have to have some sense of what this means and what this is. We must understand it and embrace it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, I was thinking about this this week. It's hard in our day and time to really be impressed with just that statement without really giving some thought to it. 
a couple of weeks ago, I was flipping the channels on the TV. It's amazing. You can have a bunch of channels and nothing be worth watching. But I, I ran across the old Star Wars films, the ones that were, you know, around when I was a kid. How many of you have seen those? All right, the old Star Wars. They're great, great, great movies. And I can, I, I, was, I was watching just the little bit that I watched that day of the Star Wars film. Uh, I, I was kind of going back in my mind to when I was a kid and saw those movies for the first time and how just remarkable they seemed to me, how incredible they seemed to be, you know, and how, um, just how fantastic, you know, looking at it down the road, I don't know how many years, when were the first Star Wars films made? I got film people here, you should know. 77 to 77 to 83, thank you for bailing me out there, I appreciate that. Um, 77 to 83, um, well, a lot's changed since 77 to 83 to 2014 when it comes to, you know, what takes place on film. You know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I like the um, I like the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies and the new ones out. I haven't got to see that yet. But um, but, but the, the movies are just to me, they're, they're I just they draw me in and I love the fantasy of it. And, you know, all of the characters, the elves and the, the orcs and the wizards and all of that stuff. It just it just you know, I don't know, maybe I'm still a kid inside, but it, it just is impressive to me. It's, it's a whole fantasy world where all kinds of crazy things take place that don't happen in the real world and and you know it's just amazing how how things have progressed and how realistic and how amazing and how real real things can look on on film and in the mix of a culture where we're just used to transformers transforming and we're used to elves and wizards and warlocks and we're used to all kinds of amazing things playing out before our eyes it's really hard to be impressed with a simple statement that the word became flesh and dwelt among us it's hard to, to really be impressed with the greatest, most amazing, miraculous thing that's ever in reality taken place. Because we're so used to seeing miraculous things before our eyes. But nothing on film and nothing in reality even comes close to the, the incarnation of Jesus, to what we celebrate at Christmas. Nothing more astounding, nothing more amazing than this truth. That the one who was before all things, who created all things, who sustains all things, who, who rules all things, became flesh and dwelt among men. The infinite one took on time. The one who dwells in radiant light, the Bible says, took on human flesh. The one who was in every sense timeless stepped into time and became a man dwelt among us. Now, what does it all mean? Well, it's impossible to fully grasp it, I think, with the human intellect, right? I mean, you can let your mind spin on that for quite some time, how this is possible, and the reality of it, and, and it can make your brain start to smoke. It's a mystery. It is a, a glorious Mystery. It is the great and glorious mystery of Christmas. The greatest mystery of Christmas is not how one fat guy can get to every house in the same night or how he can fit down a skinny chimney. The great mystery of Christmas is God became flesh and he dwelt among us. God became a man. You know, the Bible has told us all throughout that God has partially been had been revealing himself in various ways throughout history prior to the incarnation. He had been revealing himself in dreams and visions partially. We see that in the Old Testament. We go back to a burning bush fire in Moses day and God is revealing himself, showing some things about himself. We we see parts and pieces of who he is and the otherworldly sort of a glow over the ark of the covenant and we see pieces and parts of who he is in the the, the pillar of smoke and the the blazing fire that led the Israelites in the Old Testament. But all of those images of of who God is they contain some sort of a distance between God and man. And it all changes when we get to the incarnation because now the God who had revealed himself in pieces and parts to these other images has now stopped using imagery that's distant, but he has come near to us and taken on human flesh so that we might see him and hear him and those who are his contemporaries even touch him. God bridged the gap and came near. 
And he became a man, and he did so without in any sense diminishing his deity. Even more remarkable. It is the mystery of Christmas. And it's what took place in Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph and some animals perhaps being the only ones present. I mean, if you were making a movie of this event, it wouldn't even, you know, the... There's no cinematic climax. There's no, there's no, there's no big war. There's no fanfare. There's nothing really to play up. It all happens so quietly and so simply with such a small audience. And yet it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. And yet when we get to Luke chapter 2, we find out that this greatest Miracle that's ever happened. God becoming flesh. Apart from Mary and Joseph, we're told by Luke that the first people who are let in on this great miracle are this band of shepherds. It's kind of interesting to me to to think in terms of that. Of all the people that God could have first brought into uh, the loop, so to speak, on what's just taken place. I mean, this amazing, marvelous thing has happened and only a couple people know about it and the first people to whom god it seems chose to reveal this great thing were a bunch of shepherds who were out in a field keeping watch over their flocks by night of all the people god could have chosen he chose shepherds simple uneducated ordinary shepherds out in a field watching sheep thought it was appropriate for us to talk about this aspect of the story because we've been tracking through the Gospel of John. And just in our last chapter that we've studied, chapter 10, we've been talking a lot about shepherds, haven't we? Surely you haven't forgotten that already, those of you who've been around, right? It's just been a couple of weeks. We've been talking about this idea of Jesus, the one who's born in the Incarnation, using this illustration of sheep and shepherds to describe who he is. So here John is telling us in the beginning who he is, and later on in his life and his public ministry, Jesus is talking about who he is. And he uses this very illustration, doesn't he, of shepherds and sheep. And he is telling the crowd who's listening to him that day, I'm the good shepherd. Do you remember that? We talked about it. John chapter 10, verse 11, revealing his identity. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who's a hired hand is not a shepherd um, who does not own the sheep. He sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them, Jesus said. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for my sheep. That's what Jesus said. And it was such a vivid illustration. It was such a vivid illustration that the people who were listening to him that day could have so clearly and easily understood because they were familiar with shepherds. They'd seen them all around. It was just such a common scene. A few verses later in verse 27 and 28 of chapter 10, Jesus continues that illustration. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he talked about shepherds. And we talked about shepherds. What a lowly sort of a job that was. And what a lonely sort of a job that was. And how shepherds would gather their sheep at night and they would sleep often right where they were, near them, in the, in the doorway, perhaps even, of whatever holding pen they were holding them in. And it's exactly that kind of a shepherd to whom God chooses to first reveal the Incarnation. And on the surface, I guess it seems surprising, doesn't it, a bit, that God would choose them? Of all the folks that were roaming around on the planet at the time that he could have chosen to reveal that to, he chooses them. On the surface, they just seem kind of ordinary, and they don't seem uh, like the kind of folks that God would choose, maybe. Certainly not the kind of folks we would choose, right? But it shouldn't surprise us at all, because in a subtle yet awesome way, in choosing them, God is making clear the identity of his son. You may or may not remember this, but a couple of weeks back, I I took you to Ezekiel chapter 34. Do you remember this? And we looked at a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34 that God had laid down through the pen of Ezekiel. And it had to do with shepherds. 
In Ezekiel chapter 34, God is chastising the leaders of Israel. They were the religious leaders who were the shepherds of Israel. They were supposed to be the spiritual shepherds of Israel. But they had absolutely perverted the task and were not acting as good shepherds. Instead of caring for their sheep, instead of loving their sheep, instead of feeding the sheep that God had entrusted to their care, they instead were filling their own bellies and getting rich. And they were caring only for themselves and loving only themselves. And they were utterly neglecting the sheep. And so God speaks through Ezekiel, just sort of a, a, blazing, sort of, um, a blazing sort of reprimand toward those, those shepherds, those shepherds who were supposed to be representing him, but who were not. And God says to them in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 through 5, he says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should shepherds feed the sheep or should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you haven't strengthened, the sick you haven't healed, the injured you haven't bound up, the strayed you haven't brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. I mean, everything a shepherd was supposed to do, they were what? They were not doing. You wonder, what were these guys doing? And he says, so they're scattered because there's no shepherd. And they became food for wild beasts. My, my sheep are at risk and they're in danger because you have abandoned your responsibility, God says to these shepherds. But then God on the heels of that says this, As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. You remember this? And I will rescue them from the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out, of, out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. Down in verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I've spoken. Do you remember that prophecy? God's saying to those shepherds, you've abandoned your responsibility, so I'm going to have to do what you ought to have been doing all along. I personally am going to take responsibility for my sheep, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to gather them up, and I'm going to, to bring to you the means by which I'm going to do this is by a great shepherd, one shepherd, my servant David. Who do you think he was talking about? He was talking about the incarnation of Jesus. At the birth of Jesus, we have the fulfillment of this prophecy of God. God said, I'll come and get my sheep, and I'm going to give them a new shepherd. And what we find with Mary and Joseph in, the, in Bethlehem is the birth of this new shepherd who's going to gather the sheep. Because the ones who were supposedly God's shepherds for the people had abandoned their task. And so it's fitting in a sense, isn't it? And pretty awesome that God chooses a group of shepherds, to be the first ones to hear about the fact that there's a new shepherd, a prophesied shepherd, who's going to shepherd his people. That's a lot of shepherds. But you get the point, right? I think there's a subtle thing here. In some subtle way, God bringing these shepherds first, it's his way of saying, this is who he is. This is the shepherd, and shepherds will get it. We don't know much about these shepherds in Luke chapter 2. We don't know much about them. Maybe they knew about this prophecy. I suspect that they did. Maybe of all people, they would appreciate it the most. I don't know. But in any case, they were the ones chosen. It was not random. And God, in all of his infinite wisdom, chooses to reveal the greatest miracle of all time. First to a bunch of shepherds. I want to give just a few minutes to look at this uh, this morning. I want to give you a quick note before we dive into this on the birth narratives. You have the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. And just uh, don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just because we haven't been studying either of these Gospels lately, it would be helpful to know that Luke is a Gospel that's written primarily for a Gentile audience. And in Luke's presentation of Christ, he focuses on the humanity of Christ. As opposed to Matthew's presentation of, the, of his gospel, written primarily to Jews, to a Jewish audience, focusing primarily on the divinity of Christ. Okay, so we get two sort of different, um, is the word foci? 
focuses. I don't know. You can fix my grammar later, but you understand. They have two different audiences and two different names. One is essentially trying to present primarily the humanity of Christ, the other the deity of Christ. So we get to Matthew. We're going to see things like royal, the story of royal, magi coming to, to meet the, the mother and father and baby. We're going to see lots of instances where Matthew's going to tell us and something happened and this fulfilled. This happened in order to fulfill what was written through the prophet because to a Jewish audience it's really important to know how prophecy is being fulfilled. We're not going to find that in Luke's writing because that's not his aim primarily. Luke is showing the humanity of Christ primarily. It's much more in detail than that, but that's a good brief summary. And so Luke tells us about these shepherds, these ordinary shepherds. And he simply introduces us to them by saying, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. So who were these people? Who were these shepherds? And where do they fit into the big picture? And maybe we can find some insight as to why God chose them. What you should know first about these guys is they were religious outcasts. If you were a shepherd, you were a religious outcast. That was just the way of life. According to Jewish law, if you were a shepherd, you were unclean. And being unclean in that day and time in that particular religious context was not a good thing, right? They were unclean. Their line of work prevented them from being able to go in and participate in the feasts and the holy days that made up the religious Jewish calendar. Why was that? Well, they were unclean. That's one reason. But they also were constantly where? They were constantly out with the sheep. That's what shepherds did. They, they hung around sheep. They, they, they kept watch over their flocks. And somebody had to keep over a watch over the flocks. And the shepherds, that's what they did. And so um, if, they, if they left the sheep, what happens to the sheep? Well, they're in danger. They get scattered. They get lost. They get ravaged by predators or, or something like this. So somebody's got to be watching the sheep. These, uh, these shepherds, that was their job. That's what they did. So while everybody else was making the trip to Jerusalem to make sacrifices at the temple... While everybody else was participating in the feast, these guys were out in the fields doing what? Keeping watch over their flocks by day and by night. So they weren't able to participate in the regular worship of God's people for a multitude of reasons. Maybe a modern day example might be in our culture, a a shift worker or a trucker or somebody whose job keeps them from regularly being able to attend public worship and be a part of the community of God's people. And in their case, it wasn't really their fault, but they were looked down on by people in their culture. They were looked down on uh, from a religious point of view. They, They were religious outcasts because they didn't participate and couldn't participate in the life, the religious life of the community. But it's not just that they were religious outcasts. They were also sort of borderline social outcasts as well. Shepherds were, since they were constantly on the move from one pasture to the other, spending most of their time not around people but about uh, sheep with sheep. Uh, they were often looked upon with some level of suspicion. Uh, maybe the way that uh, people today look upon—I uh, don't know—you ever go to the fair? You know, what do you call them? Carnies, carnival workers, Romanian context gypsies, maybe. Um, that kind of a just they're the kind of folks that you looked on with some, you know, if something showed up missing and stolen, you probably wouldn't suspect the Pharisees, but you might suspect a shepherd. It's just the way they were looked upon. Um, they weren't protest- uh, they were not uh, allowed, if you will, to give testimony in a legal proceeding because their word wasn't considered trustworthy. Um, and beyond all of that, they just didn't have a lot of contact with people. They were all the time out in the fields. And their job wasn't like many of your jobs. It wasn't like a 40 or 45 or 50 hour a week job. It was, it was a constant job. They were constantly out in the fields. And they didn't come home at night, uh, 24-7, unless, as we talked about in John's Gospel, where they were near a, a highly populated area and there were some communal pens with a guard that they could pen their sheep overnight. Um, apart from those kind of moments, they were with the sheep all the time. While the sheep were grazing, they were keeping watch over them. Uh, While the sheep were sleeping, the shepherd was sleeping nearby, watching out for predators, watching out for thieves, watching out not for anyone or anything that would come to harm the sheep. And, And as we saw, a good shepherd knew his sheep by name, by sight. And it was a lonely, wearisome, boring and tedious in some ways sort of a job. And sometimes really dangerous you know, David in the Old Testament was a shepherd. you remember that? David was also a great musician. 
play an instrument as well. And uh, it's, it wasn't uncommon for shepherds to be instrumentalists because well, what else do you do when you're hanging out with a bunch of sheep all day long? And you've got time on your hands. I mean, you count the stars. Okay, done that. Um, maybe you play an instrument. But they just didn't have a whole lot of social context uh, in social contact. I'll put it this way. If you had a daughter, uh, you probably wouldn't want them to, to get engaged to a shepherd. Does that make sense? Okay. We have a newly engaged couple here this morning, I think, don't we? Don't we? There's nothing like embarrassing people and calling them out without using their names. They're over there. Um, <laughs> congratulations. But you get the idea of what these people were like, right? I mean, not hardly the kind of folks that we would choose to invite to some major happening in the culture, right? And yet this is exactly who God has chosen to invite to reveal to the most miraculous event that's ever taken place in human history. If you were a marketing, uh, a modern marketing agent, and your, uh, you were, your, your job was to get out the word of the Savior's birth, I mean, who would you go to first? I, I don't know who you'd go to first, and you didn't jump to tell me, but it probably wouldn't be these guys, right? Maybe it would be the high priest, the religious leader of the nation. Maybe it would be the chief priests and the scribes. Maybe you'd pick the Sanhedrin, or maybe you'd pick the Pharisees, or maybe you'd pick Caesar Augustus, the leader of the Roman Empire. But the last group you'd probably pick would be this crowd. But it's the first crowd that God picked. Why? Well, I think in one sense it was to validate Ezekiel's prophecy and to make clear the identity of who Jesus was. In, 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 in essence, by choosing him, he accomplished that. But I think there's another reason as well. God seems to always, have you noticed this, have a high regard for the lowly, for the outcast, for the under and unappreciated. It's a theme that runs through the text of Scripture. Have you noticed this along the way? That God isn't typically, he doesn't typically take notice of those to whom the culture takes notice. He isn't usually impressed with those who we're impressed with. Those are not kinds of folks that God normally chooses. No, God typically chooses the lowly, the outcasts, the unappreciated. Those who, by human standards, seem to be the least likely kinds of folks. I mentioned David a little while ago, and of course there's hardly a figure that, that, that comes out of the Old Testament that's larger than David, right? And incidentally, what was David as, as a career before he became king? He also was a shepherd, right? Keeping his, um, uh, the, the flocks as well as son of Jesse. But do you remember when God chose David to be the next king? Do you remember that, that series of events where he sends the prophet Samuel to David's father's house because he knows that the, the future king, the, the anointed king, is there in Jesse's home? And he goes, and do you remember what happens? Jesse brings out all the kids, and Samuel, the prophet, looks them all over, and he goes instantly. Uh, he doesn't go instantly, but he goes to the one at some point, the, the one that any one of us probably would have looked at and said, this guy He's got, you know, he's, he's king material, a guy by the name of Eliab. And he looks, looks at him, and Samuel says, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Eliab looked like king material, didn't he? Like a strong guy, commanding, kingish, if you will. But God says, Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks where? He looks at the heart. And after all of Jesse's sons were rejected, Samuel finally says, look, you've got to have another kid around here somewhere, right? That's my paraphrase. And Jesse said, well, there's just one. He's out with the sheep. <laughs> but he can't be the one you're talking about. Samuel says, bring him on. Once again, my paraphrase. Jesse points out two problems with David. Number one, he's the youngest. And number two, he's hanging out with the sheep. Least likely to be chosen by God. And yet he was what? He was God's man, wasn't he? He was God's man. 
God chose intentionally the least likely. And if you move forward in history and you look, as we have been through the Gospel of John, and you look at the 12 guys who were hanging around Jesus the most, the 12 apostles, you look at that crowd of people, and when you look at them and you survey who they are and where they've come from and what kind of men they were, do you look at them and say, now there's the makings of a really awesome crowd? Do you look at them and say, now there's, the, there's Earth's elite? There's our next superhero movie? You didn't, did you? No, because they, too, were a very unlikely crew. They're not the wealthy. They're not the beautiful. They're not the most popular. They were likely not the most intelligent. They were fishermen, and they were tax collectors, and they were people who you wouldn't normally do anything but pass by. Common laborers, hated tax collectors, the least likely to be chosen. And yet in God's economy, somehow they were the most likely to be chosen. They were exactly the ones to be chosen. I mean, you can track this all the way from David through the apostles. And frankly, look around. I mean, right now. Think about the church. Think about the church of Jesus Christ as it exists today. What, is, what, what kind of folks largely make up the church of Jesus Christ? We well, can look around. There's some in here. A lot, I think. Or don't if you don't want to. But when I look around this crowd, I mean, I don't know all of you in deeply personal ways, but I know a lot of you. I don't, I don't see Earth's elite primarily here. I see people, and I don't mean any offense by this because I categorize myself right there with you, just normal people. Just normal, ordinary folks who have ordinary families, who have ordinary lives. People who the important people in our culture would walk right by and never give us another look, really. Never think anything significant about us, just people. But in this group are a lot of folks that are exactly the kind of people that God's chosen to reveal himself to, to to give insight into this miracle of the incarnation. God has always been calling people who are not the elite of the world. Paul wrote about this at the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. That's, that's worth doing, isn't it? What were you like when God called you? What were you like when the gospel came into your life and invaded your mind and invaded your heart and God opened your eyes to the miracle of the incarnation and to the, to the miracle of the substitutionary atonement of Christ dying in your place? What, what was it like for you? What were you when you were called? He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God does what? He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And get this, here's a reason for it. So that no one may boast before him. So God has a special affinity for the, the base things of the world. He has a, 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 a special affinity for people who are not particularly influential, who are not particularly noble, who are not necessarily the wisest of all creatures, who are not the strongest of the strong. He has a special affection for the weak and the foolish and the despised and the flawed. He loves to call and to save those the world would never choose. Do you see that? He loves to do that. It shouldn't surprise us because the Old Testament prophets told us that was something about what his ministry would be like. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, Isaiah said, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness for the prisoners. It's a prophecy of what Messiah's ministry was going to be like. It wasn't going to be primarily a ministry to the elite, to the wealthy, to the beautiful, to the rich, to the powerful, to the popular. No, it was going to be primarily a ministry to the poor and to the brokenhearted and to captives and to prisoners. If you want to summarize all that up, it was going to be primarily a ministry to sinners. Right? That's exactly what it turns out to be. And in God choosing these shepherds, we see a glimpse of that right at the beginning, don't we? We see a glimpse of that right at the beginning. And it stands in, in great contrast to God's disdain, really, for the super religious who love to prance around showing everybody how spiritual and religious they are. 
as though God's lucky to have them on his team, right? We've seen this in the Pharisees as we've tracked through the Gospel of John over and over and over again. Super religious, overly pious, extremely arrogant, pompous, and showy, thinking that they're so deserving of God's grace and so spiritual, and they're exactly the people that God rejected. Because in their hearts they were evil, they didn't love God, they loved themselves. Just like those shepherds in the Old Testament to whom God was speaking in Ezekiel's day. The same sort of thing that Paul said it best when he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds to the end of that, do you remember what? Of whom I'm the worst, or I'm the chief. That's who Christ came for. He came for sinners. He came for the lowly. He came for the outcast. He came for the brokenhearted. He came for the ones who are looking desperately for love but can't find it anywhere. He came for those who, who struggle and who hurt. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Why does God choose the outcast and the lowly and the weak like shepherds and sinners? I can think of at least two reasons. Number one, because when he does it, it magnifies his grace. It magnifies his grace. You know why? Because it's exactly the kind of people that he chooses or the kinds of people who understand in their hearts that there's no amount of self-effort on their part that could make things right with their creator. It's those kind of people who look at themselves in the mirror and they say, you know what, I am not worthy of God's grace. I can't earn it and I don't deserve it. It's the people who've already come to terms with that. They understand because they're lowly that they didn't earn it. The weak understand that they're not strong enough. The poor understand that they can't buy it. They know that their only hope is God's grace. And when it comes to them, they glorify God in it and they give thanks for it. And they gratefully celebrate receiving what they know they could have never earned for themselves. I think God loves to choose those kinds of folks, because when he does it and they receive him and they glory in him and they give thanks for what he's done for them, it magnifies his marvelous grace in ways that are unique. And also when he does that, he gets all the glory, doesn't he? He gets all the glory. It magnifies his grace and he gets all the glory. And that's why Paul said in that in that passage we just read in First Corinthians that God chooses the foolish of the world to shame the wise and he chooses the weak and he chooses the low and despised. And he does that so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that none of us can stand and say, boy, I'm here because I earned it. I'm here because I deserve it. I'm here because I'm such a great spiritual person. No, it's sinners who stand before God and say, you know what? I'm here only by the grace of God. I'm here because God in his grace gave his only begotten son that I might place my faith in him and have eternal life. And that glorifies God. Glorifies him. When he chooses people who are obviously not very gifted and not very powerful and not very strong, the results cannot be attributed to human effort. They can only be attributed to God. So in one sense, the lower the sinner, the greater is God's glory when he saves him. Well, you get the point. All this is illustrated in some sense in God choosing these shepherds, isn't it? Because it's exactly who he chose. And perhaps why he chose them first. So how does that apply for us? I don't know. I guess if you're here and you can identify in any way with the shepherds, it makes sense to you. If when you look at your own self in the mirror and you... Think about who you are as a human being and where you fit into the world. You look at yourself and you say, well, I'm not the elite of the world. I'm not a YouTube sensation right now. Hollywood's not knocking on my door to make movies with me. I'm looking at my bank account and I'm not raking in the millions at the moment. I'm not the strongest. I'm not the most beautiful. I'm not the most educated. In the eyes of the world, I'm not the most, um, most valuable if you think any of those kinds of thoughts about yourself, or if you ever thought them, then this has a lot to do with you. Because you're exactly the kind of person whom God chooses to call, typically. You're exactly the kind of person that God chooses often to reveal himself to and to call to himself. Perhaps this morning that's you. Perhaps you look at yourself in the mirror and you kind of see yourself as... As an outsider looking in, 
I can imagine those shepherds did on many nights, sitting out in the fields with their sheep, cold, lonely, nothing but dumb animals to keep them company. Maybe they saw from the distance the lights of the, the town and the people going about their business and navigating with their families and celebrating the holidays. And maybe they felt like an outsider looking in. Maybe you felt that way too. Maybe you don't feel like you're one of the beautiful people or not particularly wealthy or powerful or influential. Not likely to ever see your name in the newspaper for some great accomplishment. Maybe you look at your own level of religious observance and you say, I'm not even, a, not even really a good religious person. I don't even really go to church all that often. I read my Bible like I should. I don't pray nearly enough. And maybe even this morning you're thinking that if God even knows that you exist, and he probably doesn't, he probably doesn't have a very favorable opinion of you. And you know what? There's a lot of people that secretly deep down feel those things about themselves. Oh, they wouldn't tell you on a given Sunday morning, but it's there and it's real. Even sometimes the people that you look at and on the outside you think they have it all together because that's what they look like on the outside. It's not always what's going on on the inside. Maybe this morning you feel like the kind of person that God doesn't really care about, couldn't really care about. Well, you got it backwards. You need to realize this morning that these shepherds tell us anything. They tell us that you're exactly the kind of person that God chooses and God calls and God uses. Look at look what he did with the lowly David little shepherd boy. Look what he did with a a motley crew of 12 apostles. And look what he chooses to do with this group of shepherds. He can use you too. He can save you too. He can redeem your soul too. He can transform you into something that you're not at the moment and use you in remarkable ways in his kingdom and for his glory. He can do these things. He's done it time and time and time again throughout the history of humanity. And just as God had a message for those shepherds on that particular day, he's got a message for you. He didn't send angels to you. Far from it. He sent me. No kidding. But just like he invited those shepherds, he's inviting you today. Will you receive his message? Will you believe what it is that he has for you? You say, well, what is the message? The message is real simple. The angels appear to these shepherds, and you can only imagine what it was like for them, these lowly guys living that normal existence out there. Can you imagine what it was like? I mean, everything's quiet. It's a normal night. And then, boom, out of nowhere, angel appears. Not just an angel, but the glory of the Lord shining around them. A whole separate thing. So you've got an angel, and we've talked about this at different times throughout the gospel, but angels, you're not talking fat, cuddly, wings, you know, cute baby angels. We're talking about fearsome, strong, intimidating, probably, creatures. That would have astounded these men. And the glory of the Lord, we're talking about this bright, divine light that represents the presence and the power of Almighty God. All of a sudden, you're out in this field with your sheep, and then all of this happens. And they're terrified, no doubt. That's what the text tells us. We'll hear more about that on Christmas Eve. But the message that's delivered to them is, hey, don't be afraid. I've got good news. I've got good news of great joy for all men. Good news of great joy. I've come to deliver a message, and it's a good message. And I've come to deliver to you. And it's not just a message for you, but it's a message for all people. It's a message for shepherds, and it's a message for everyone else, too. It's a message for the rich and for the poor, for the educated, for the uneducated, for the beautiful, for the unattractive, for every race and every tribe and every people, for the big and strong, for the small and weak. It is a message for all humanity. And here's the message. Today, a Savior has been born to you. What better message could ever be delivered to any human ears than that? But remarkable to this crowd. You're out here watching your sheep. You need to know something remarkable has happened. There's been a Savior born for you. 
That's an amazing message. The Jews had been anticipating a Savior, but it wasn't like this. They were looking for a different kind of Savior. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we get a glimpse into exactly what kind of a Savior this Savior is. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? What kind of Savior is he going to be? Because he'll save his people from their sins. Today, a Savior has been born. Today, someone has come to save you from your sins. What a message. A message for, for people who thought they were on the outskirts of even God's peripheral vision. Mankind's greatest problem, isn't it? It's not poverty. It's not a lack of education. It's not disease. It's not homelessness. It's not global warming. Mankind's worst problem is sin. The sin that dwells in his heart, that corrupts his mind, that corrupts his thoughts, that corrupts his being, that corrupts him head to toe and separates him from his almighty creator. It's the worst problem that humanity has. It's the worst problem any individual human being has. And it's the worst problem you've ever had. It may be the worst problem that you have at this moment. But for you, there's been born a Savior. Christ, the Lord. Romans chapter 6, 23 tells us the worst problem we have. For the wages of sin is what? It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And every one of us is guilty of sin before God. Because in Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just lowly shepherds who were social and religious outcasts, but you and me and everybody else. And every Pharisee and every scribe that ever walked the planet had the same problem. And the problem is our sin has separated us from our creator, making us his enemies. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 3, the the, the prophet says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But what? what? Your iniquities, another way of saying your sins, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. There's There's not a worse problem a human being can ever have than that right there that have sins that indwell them, that have sins that corrupt them, that have separated them from their God and caused Him to hide His face from you so that He will not hear. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says it another way. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Separated from God, enemies of God. But at the end of Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, even though you used to be God's enemies, he writes to these believers, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And that all comes to bear in your life, he says, if you simply confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you do that, you'll be saved. And the story of Christmas, that today a Savior has been born to you, Christ the Lord, goes from being just a story that's external to you to being a reality that's internal to you. He is Christ the Lord, and there's no greater message than any human ears have ever heard. And God chose to early on to deliver it to a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of overlooked people who are not society's elite. And the same message he delivered to them today, today the Savior has been born to you, is the same message that he delivers through me to you today. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. It doesn't matter whether you think of yourself as high or low, strong or weak, important or unimportant, religious or unreligious, non-religious. None of those things matter, at least in God's economy. You're exactly the kind of people he calls and chooses. You're exactly the kind of person that he would that he would joy in opening your eyes to see the truth of Christmas, the incarnation, the reality that he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did so that he might be your savior, that he might die for your sins, 
that he might save you from them. He is Christ the Lord. Well, the shepherds got it. I think they got it. They went away and immediately found Jesus. They dropped everything, even the sheep, I think, and went straight to where the angels told them to go. And they found Jesus, and they worshipped him, and they saw for themselves. And then they went away rejoicing and telling anybody who'd listen what they had seen and heard and experienced. What a great story. But it's not a story. It's reality. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you feel in some ways like that outsider, I pray this morning that you would hear this message loud and clear. That you would believe in your heart that no matter how you see yourself, you're exactly the kind of person that God can save this morning. No matter how dark your sins, no matter how far you've strayed from His fold, He can be your very own and real Savior today. It's simple. In one sense, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Confess that you believe that Jesus is who He said He is, that He is God who became flesh and dwelt among men. Believe that He went to a cross where He shed His blood for your sins and on your behalf. Make a conscious decision right this moment to turn from your sin. To stop living for yourself. To stop stop pursuing your own self-pleasure and the fleeting treasures of this world. And turn toward Jesus Christ and pursue Him. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. No matter how many they are. Commit to Him to this very day that you submit your life to Him as your Lord and Savior. If you do that today, then Christmas is much, much more for you than just a story. It's much, much more than just a miracle that gets lost in all the fantasy of our culture. It becomes the personal reality that God takes people who are lowly and weak and don't deserve it, and He pours out upon them His sovereign grace upon grace, upon grace, and saves them not because they deserve it, not because He owes them, but because He's a gracious God who loves to pour out His love on people who receive it and glory in Him for it. Won't you do that today? If you're a Christian this morning and that's already the reality of your life, then I pray that this morning the story just in your mind would recaptivate your imagination. That you'd once again become enthralled with the incarnation of Jesus. That your heart would be filled to overflowing with the majesty of the manger, God, who was before all things, who created all things, who sustains all things and rules all things. He became flesh. He came near. That you might know Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we marvel. We marvel in our hearts at what you've done. You didn't have to. You would have been completely just to leave us in our sin. You would have been completely righteous in leaving us to face the eternal damnation that we deserve and that we've earned. But because of your great love for us, you came. And you lived and you died to save us. (laughs) Oh, Jesus, we'll never appreciate that like we ought to. We'll never marvel at that like we should. Our minds are, are simply too small to even fully grasp what that means. But I pray that this morning in our hearts you would birth a fresh joy and a fresh excitement and a fresh sense of marvel at what you've done for us. And that as we celebrate this week, that that joy would increase and that the worship in our hearts would overflow in joy to you. 
Because when we look at ourselves, Lord, we know we're not the, the world's elite. That you chose us out of your sovereign grace, not because we deserved it. And so we thank you. We thank you, Lord. But Lord, for those who have gathered this morning who are outsiders, and they know it, they know it because they've never placed their faith in you, Jesus. Maybe there are some who've come this morning who feel like they're beyond your grace. They're, they're not smart enough. They're not good enough. They're not religious enough. feel this morning when they walked in like outsiders looking in on something that they're not a part of. I pray that in these moments, Lord, you'd open their eyes. That they would sense in a very real and personal way your deep abiding love for them. Lord Jesus, a love that caused you to come and to live and to die for them. And I pray that in these moments they would receive you as Lord and Savior. You make that miracle come to life in this place today, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.